Welcome to Webinacki Windows. I'm your host, Donald Loring. This is part two Webinacki Windows special covering the 131st legislative, uh, Legislature's first session and tribal issues brought before it. This uh, two-part special is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine. So we left off. We were talking about the uh, governor's veto letter and the point where she make that she makes about um, the uh, imprecise language would lead to litigation uh, and confusion of uh, where Maine law uh, would would apply. Do you have any comments on that, Corey? Uh, I I do. I've got a lot of thoughts. I think that it's just, I find it very ironic that the governor of the state of Maine is diminishing the sovereignty of her position and of the entire state through these arguments. I've been in rooms with governors of Maine where they assert the state's sovereignty and this notion that you know, we don't want the feds here. Like we can do things ourselves. Like there's this very strong sense of Maine's independence. And I view the, the governor's arguments, not just as legally incorrect and frankly, very lazy, but I think they're a front to the state of Maine sovereignty. Um, this is exclusively about Maine law. This is really not about overriding federal law in any way, because if the governor took the time to read federal law that we're dealing with here, it says very clearly that these federal beneficial laws will, whether they uh, will apply in Maine or not, it's entirely dependent on how they interact with state law. Therefore, if you amend state law, there's no conflict with federal laws. Congress very, very clearly in three different ways for four different tribal nations invited the state of Maine and the federally recognized nations to amend the Settlement Act, to reach agreements on how civil and criminal jurisdiction applies. And all of these laws that we're looking at, these federal beneficial acts, they're, they're all civil or criminal in nature. So, you know, I think the fact that the governor says that they don't have the power to do this, I, I'll say it again, it's a lazy reading of the law. The state of Maine undoubtedly has the power to adjust its own laws. And for the governor to suggest that they cannot do that in a way that brings more resources, more dollars, more jobs to Maine, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I think that that there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty that goes into this particular argument. Okay, and and to back this up, she further says uh, this is because LDE 2004 modifies or would effectively repeal a broad swath of Maine laws governing public health, uh, safety, and welfare in all Wabanaki Nation's territory, presently held and later acquired territory that is scattered across the state and that was acquired pursuant to the agreement that they would remain subject to state laws in perpetuity to avoid the very problem that LD 2004 uh, would create. And I just want, before I read this, I've always kind of tried to articulate in my mind what specific laws uh, and how 
how fully the state laws control tribal communities in what areas. And she, uh, she's very, uh, she articulates it very well when she says uh, those laws <clears throat> could cover fish and game regulations, water quality and land use regulations, forest practices, uh, act provisions, air quality standards, labor laws, fire safety, and building standards, non-discrimination laws, school funding and education requirements, subdivision laws, healthcare regulations, and the probate code, among others. The bill does not identify exactly which state laws would be modified, which is a serious problem. This, these areas, uh, how this, the state just controls us in so many minute and overwhelming ways. I mean, she just named them. So I kind of thank her for this letter, kind of a, <laughs> it details uh, things. So, uh, oh, and then she goes, she says, uh, this would uh, create great uncertainty. Our main people, business and municipality, well, let's, let's just hold that for a second. Let's go back to this, all of these areas that uh, the, the laws would, uh, would kind of create confusion in. So, and, and I think, Cora, you kind of <clears throat> addressed that very well when, when you said that federal laws allow for, for uh, state laws. Do you have any more comments on, on these? On these little, you know, areas, quality, it's just so many. Well, I, I defer to the chief uh, or the ambassador if they want to comment first. Well, I would just add, Corey, I think you articulated it very well. I mean, I think um, to this seems to be the only area where she agrees that state sovereignty is not uh, is not applicable. Um, you know, you look at um, and again, I'll carry out my comments by saying I am not close to being a lawyer and I'm and I'm not uh, pretending to be one. But I, I would just say. You know, when you look at things like the state's cannabis laws, for example, when you look at things like um, the recently passed um, abortion bill, um, you know, there's an appetite to impose state will over a federal stance all the time. And, and as Corey, I think, articulated, you know, I think the Settlement Act makes pretty clear that uh, the relationship between the state and the tribes um, can be sorted out at the state level. As a matter of fact, um, it's a historic delegation by the United States Congress in terms of the Maine Implementing Act to to be able to um, kind of deal with these issues. So I find that um, when it comes to tribal issues, it's a convenient argument. But then you look back at um, you look back at uh, Congressman Golden's bill for example, that entire time, um, you know, the governor's office would not come to the table on that bill. Uh, anything above the status quo dealing with things one at a time is, is not going to be acceptable, which is what we do now. Uh, but the main crux of their argument was basically that this needs to be settled in our state. This issue needs to be settled in our state, negotiated in our state. And, um, so what did we do? We came back and we put the bill back in. And um, and now it's, well, 
you know, that's a federal issue. And so, um, so it's just, um, kind of this yo-yo that goes on with this argument when it's convenient. Um, but certainly, you know, when, when there's a bill being passed that goes against a federal stance, um, that they want, um, you know, it's all about state sovereignty. So, so yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a double standard there. Uh, and then she says, this would create great uncertainty. How are main people, businesses and municipalities to know what laws are in effect, where and under what circumstances. And when these inevitable questions arise, I fear they would only be solved through contentious lawsuits decided over the course of years, if not decades. After all, we have to acknowledge that the tribes in the state have been on opposing sides in court over much clearer legal language, let alone the repeal of a host of unspecific laws. And some of those lawsuits took the better part of a decade for multiple courts to decide. Comment on that, Corey? Uh, Yeah, I mean, we talk about people, this is the summer, right? Everyone hops on the interstate. You got this interstate called 95. You know, they call them interstates for a reason because they run across many states. And, you know, when I get in my car and I drive down the interstate south and I hit New Hampshire and then I go to Massachusetts, um, I expect that there are different laws, right? But we don't necessarily freak out about having to pull out the, the law code for New Hampshire or Massachusetts. We, we know that there are different rules that apply. We see the borders and we continue to go about our business. When you enter another state or another sovereign's territory, of course you expect different laws to apply. And so this whole idea that businesses or municipalities or, or non-tribal main citizens are going to be going onto tribal territory and are going to become all confused about what the laws are, that's just kind of silly, right? I mean, I don't think that confusion occurs when you're, you know, on that 20-minute strip of 95 that goes through New Hampshire before you get to Massachusetts. Why would it be any different when you're on the portion of Route 1 that passes through Indian Township? I mean, to me, these are, again, lazy metaphors that the governor's office is using. They're trying to create the suggestion that Maine citizens, Maine municipalities, and Maine businesses will somehow be um, negatively impacted and will be treated unfairly as a result of this. But the reality is that all of, our, all of the nations here in Maine have adopted laws, they have rules that in most situations are are almost carbon copies or really, really similar to exact state laws that apply to the same subject matter on the other side of the road. Um, and so this is another example of where the governor is using these very high level themes that are not tied to any real life impacts that will actually result from this legislation. And all this does is create divisions between what people think the tribes are going to be doing and what the, the municipalities and the state are doing. And those divisions, they only exist in fiction because the reality is that our laws, our regulatory systems at Passamaquoddy and Penobscot 
have been carefully developed in ways that are really consistent with state law as it stands. So it's just not really fair to say that the sky is going to fall if this legislation comes in. Okay. Um, anybody else? No, I think um, I think that's exactly right. I mean, in in this idea in the veto letter that the tribes are totally subject to state law is just not accurate. The Penobscot and Passamaquoddy tribe have exclusive rights over many things on our land. And, and so that condition or that situation exists now and Maine people are smart enough to, um, to realize that there's differences. We exist just fine together. And as, as Corey said, you know, when you drive into Canada, I, I don't know all the Canadian laws. I have an expectation that I'll be treated fairly and those types of things, but I don't, I don't know every state's laws on everything. And, and so, um, so yeah, so, so that's really the point. And, and, you know, when you look at um, the exclusive authority over the taking of fish and wildlife, for example, within Indian territory, you know, that's exclusively with the tribe Um, that uh, situation, you know, and as we saw in the river case, you know, the the arguments they can make is where your territory is. Uh, But, at the same time, um, my point here is that, remember, we're dealing with four tribal nations here in this state. And um, while we have those rights and certain rights and all of those things, the Micmac and Maliseet don't have the same rights as as um, as the tribe. So this was really about trying to clear up a lot of these inequities. And in terms of main people being confused and all of that, that con- that condition exists right now in terms of um, separate sets of laws um, in separate territories. I mean, I know at Penobscot we've adopted a lot of state law as our own, um, and um, and they don't differ all that much in terms of um, what the expectations are uh, when you're on our territory. So, uh, so again, I, I would just agree with Corey on on his points. It's it's a it's a straw man, and it's it's really just about um, again. It all sounds great to the average listener that's looking at that, saying, "Oh, you know, I guess the governor is is um, just looking out to." But you know, we've been in litigation for over forty years here. Um, you know, I know our tribe just in the past decade has spent close to seven million dollars on legal fights over basic rights that Indian tribes should have. And uh, that wasn't about confusion for Mainers. You know, on the Penobscot River, we we exercised jurisdiction on that river for decades. We have state-certified law enforcement people. State people went to state court. Tribal people went to tribal court. It was working just fine. And um, and, uh, so... So I don't buy that argument at all, and and neither do a lot of citizens that I've talked to. So um, so I think it's um, again one of those things that you throw out there, and um, it creates confusion, which creates fear, and it's just um, it's the perfect way to kill a bill. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. So this is this is a letter. If you take it as to what it is, a veto letter to. Uh, legislators 
and you know, and she's bringing in businesses and municipalities. And uh, and she goes on in her letter, and she says, as the town manager for Lincoln put it, and she quotes him, this bill is of significant concern to us because of the lack of clarity with respect to what it may mean in terms of state and municipal jurisdiction. It's impossible to evaluate the practical impact of this bill as drafted, particularly with so little time. We may not be opposed to having additional federal laws apply in Maine, but we want to know what they are so that we can understand the consequences. So she brings in the Lincoln town manager. And then she goes on and says these same concerns were also expressed by towns of Baileyville, Carabasset Valley, Dilver Foxcroft, East Millinocket, Howland, Mattawamkeg, and Millinocket, as well as the city of Callis, in the Guilford Sangerville uh, Sanitary District, and the Vesey Sewer District. So she brings in all of these these towns and districts, and uh, with their concerns about the bill. So it it bothers me a lot to think that as sovereign tribes. We we have to kneel to municipalities and and uh, sanitary and sewer districts. It's a joke. Well, I yeah, I mean it's uh, it's not only a joke; it, it's humiliating for sovereign governments to have to, uh, to sovereign nations to have to really uh, be put on par with that type of conversation. Uh, nationally, you see the conversation on land to trust, municipality objections. Uh, you know, members of Congress are not really given that the same status as as Indian tribes. And, and in this state, however, you know, you look at all those towns she mentioned, many of them border tribal communities. Um, you know, VZ, I don't understand. They're downstream. I don't, I don't get what their concern is. And, uh, but the other one, you know, the other one's Lincoln, Millinocket. You know, and it all goes back to this political rhetoric of the good old days coming back. You know, the there's going to be logs floating down the river again. We're going to have, you know, this this um, vibrant um, mill communities again, like all of those things. And and what we're seeing with those industries is like, um, and it's not just here in Maine. It's it's in a lot of places. They're you know, there's mills closing every day. There's, and, you know, we're not particularly happy about that. I mean, you know, we forest, we go to market, we have tribal members that work in those industries. Um, but what I'm saying is like, it, it, again, it's a fear tactic in this, this mindset that somehow the tribes are going to demand an environmental standard that is going to be um, so detrimental to those communities. It'll wreck them economically when, when those economic opportunities don't seem to be there right now. I mean, there's no controversy. So I don't understand um, where this is all coming from. And the bill was very clear and, and Corey can probably speak to this in more detail, but the bill in my mind was very clear about where these authorities applied and they were squarely in our territory. And so, um, so I, I just don't, 
don't understand the arguments. And again, um, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's frustrating because, um, you can, what if any bill to death? Um, and what if this happens? I've heard everything from, you know, the tribes could, uh, go around Maine's mining laws and, uh, we have very strict mining laws at the same time, we're fighting every mining opportunity in this country, in this state because of its potential environmental impact. Um, you know, the tribes could open up a nuclear power plant. I heard that one. I heard, you know, that we're going to buy up Portland and, you know, put that all in trust. And, and, you know, like, and as Corey articulated earlier, these processes are not that simple. I mean, so, um, so I think, uh, you know, I find the whole thing, the whole letter, quite frankly, uh, a huge scare tactic um, put in a way that uh, really creates some kind of legal confusion for people. And and as I said, you know, that's the best way to kill a bill. And, you know, I don't know if we'll get into it today or not, but there are multiple other bills and examples in the legislature where within just a period of months, they say this bill is new. Like we just don't understand, you know, it was just kind of dropped in my lap. That That's just disingenuous to say it, it wasn't. I mean, there were two public hearings on this bill. There were multiple work sessions there. This bill has, it got passed last session, by the way, as part of a much broader sovereignty bill, um, that never made it to her desk. So, uh, so she's very aware of this issue. She's very aware of this bill and what it attempts to accomplish. The fact of the matter is when she says, I think we can craft something better. We saw it with water quality. We saw it with uh, VAWA. We saw it with a lot of other things. What that really means is let me do a bill with you that puts you under state law because you'll notice the repeated concern around this is we can't change it. If we pass this law, we cannot change it. And, uh, and there may be unintended consequences. Those unintended consequences for four decades are exactly what this bill is trying to correct. And so, um, so it's about control at the end of the day. Yep, absolutely. And not only does she talk about the uh, municipalities and that sort of thing, um, now, and she talks about the environmental carve-out. Uh, so these carve-outs were apparently intended to exempt uh, several federal environmental laws from the scope of the bill, but LD 2004's actual language does not accomplish that result. This is because the carve-outs only apply to status that directly or indirectly extend the jurisdiction of the Wabanaki nations beyond their Indian territory but no federal statute directly uh, um, or indirectly extends tribal jurisdiction beyond Indian territory. They only apply within Indian territory. So the carve-outs do not actually apply to any federal statutes. Corey? We uh, were not intending to really carve out those laws. And, and and the idea was to instead to make clear that those laws 
wouldn't extend beyond tribal lands. Um, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act uh, was explicitly carved out in a true sense in that we were acknowledging it's in no way, shape or form applying here. But under those other laws, the intention was just to ensure that the tribes can access and can deliver environmental benefits to tribal lands and to ensure that uh, any exercise of power by the tribes under those laws wouldn't go beyond or enable tribal jurisdiction off tribal lands, directly or indirectly. And we specifically crafted that language in consultation with Republican leadership um, and in response to feedback from the Forest Products Council. Um, and we felt like this was, frankly, the only constructive attempt that was ever made in the entire legislative process to solve for what we viewed as a legitimate policy concern. We understand this concern that, you know, the tribe may be able to establish water quality standards off tribal lands, but that wasn't the intent. And so um, we, we put forward language, that language was discussed in committee, and there was a, a, a proposed amendment to what was already a Republican amendment to make that language even more clear. Um, and so for, for folks to be saying, for the governor's veto letter to be saying that, oh, they're not doing what they said they were doing, our intent is pretty clear, delivering benefits for tribal lands and not going beyond. That, that was always the goal when it came to those environmental statutes. Um, and I think that, that the veto letter um, intentionally twists those words because at no point did we ever say the tribes wouldn't and don't want access to the Clean Water Act. We, we never said that. Um, and so I think that, as the chief said, it's just a bit of a disingenuous argument. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I find very uh, concerning is that, you know, she's also in her letter uh, bringing in the lobstermen. Where the hell did that come from? I mean, she goes like Maine's fight within the federal government over lobster fishery is a cautionary tale. <laughs> I believe it. <clears throat> it is also uh, important to keep in mind <clears throat> that there are other potential serious ramifications to removing nearly 300,000 acres of land now held in trust by the tribes and any new lands acquired by the tribes in future from any state or local regulation. LD 2004 would transfer the state's regulatory authority in that area to the federal government. Federal law also invites federal involvement, which can lead to federal meddling. The turmoil that the federal government just put Maine lobstermen through uh, with this vast overreach, scientifically baseless and tremendously burdensome right whale regulations should give us pause and serve as cautionary tale of the unintended consequences that Maine people could suffer under such an agreement. Yes, Corey. It was at this point in reading the veto message that um, I, I, I kind of lost my cool a little bit um, at, because I, I heard all those other arguments before, mm -hmm. but this was new and this had, I believe, a very divisive purpose in being included. First and foremost, Passamaquoddy means 
Besko to Magadi, people who spear Pollock. Our entire identity revolves around access to saltwater. And there are right now, I know, probably a dozen, a few dozen past Maquati lobstermen that are out there. And we are on those waters too. We've always been on those waters. And to suggest that what we are trying to accomplish here would somehow devastate our own economy is just really not, it's just, it's just not fair. Um, but there's some layers here that are necessary to unpack. First, the minority leader in the legislature, Billy Bob Falkenham, is a lobsterman. And so by putting these sorts of arguments into the veto message, what the governor is trying to say is that minority leader Falkenham and Republicans are trying to lead an attempt to disrupt the lobster industry. So it's a political jab at the leader. It's a very disingenuous one because the leader and I think um, a lot of the tribal communities, at least at, at Pleasant Point and Passamaquoddy, have the same concerns as the lobster industry about, you know, regulations that would obstruct access to a living. Um, but here's the real problem for me. About two years ago, Mi'kmaq fishermen were very, very violently attacked by trying to access lobster fishing rights in waters in Canada. They were shot at with guns and their lobster pound was burned to the ground. Mm -hmm. It was racial violence. Now, the Mi'kmaq Nation is one of the four federally recognized tribes advocating for LD 2004. And so, you know, to me, that's like, this is almost the governor not intending to do so probably, but I think inviting and suggesting that, that this will create conflict and create animosity from non-Native fishermen towards Native American fishermen. I view that as one of the expressed goals of the statement. And unfortunately for the governor, the reality is that we've seen those same exact sentiments lead to racial violence in the past several years against Wabanaki people. This statement is, is politically divisive. It's race baiting. In my opinion, I think it's pure racism for this statement to find its way into legislation that has absolutely nothing to do at all whatsoever with lobster fishing. Like that couldn't be further from this legislation. And I know that that statement had a real effect because when we were in Augusta talking to Republicans who were supportive of LD 2004 in the first votes, some of them were actually persuaded by the governor's statement on this exact point not to support LD 2004 on the veto override. I talked to family, to legislators from down east who said, we can't risk messing with lobster fishermen. And I was like, do you want to talk to our vice chief who's a lobster fisherman? Because I think he's got the same exact concern. But no, they don't want to hear that. And so I think this was the worst part of the whole veto message. And I really think that it was calculated to encourage conflict between Native Americans and non-Native Americans. Any comments from anybody? Kirk? I would just, I would, I would agree with Corey totally. I mean, it it was kind of, that's a disgusting uh, piece of, of the message. And I think, you know, when you look at the saltwater fishing rights that our tribes possess now, um, I've never heard one tribal member say, you know, we want the feds in here regulating one of Maine's historic 
quite frankly, staple face of this state, like a huge part of its heritage, like that, that, that was, um, that was a little bit below the belt, you know? And again, I think that that, um, that comment um, actually can raise people's awareness to conflict. And, um, and I thought it was irresponsible, but the, the other thing is, again, this is a message of, I want it both ways. Uh, this state is riddled with, with federal law. I mean, her, I don't know what her thought is in terms of how our territories are governed and who we report to in certain areas, but the federal government is here and it, and it's with the federal relationship with its Indian tribes. And, um, and it, and it goes really smoothly. And so I just, I just feel like um, she was creating this atmosphere that this somehow is, you know, Washington DC is going to move into Maine all of a sudden and, um, and start disrupting some of Maine's most important. I mean, I'm surprised she didn't talk about, you know, taking over farmers lands and in, in Northern Maine and disrupting uh, the outdoorsmen and in, in Northern and Western Maine and all of these other things. It's, uh, it's just, it was really, it was really disheartening to see that, especially from a leader of the state that's supposed to be about cohesiveness and, and bringing people together. And, um, and at the same time, um, not acknowledging that uh, the successes that this relationship has had and, and the contribution to the state and to that fishery and to farmers and to the outdoors and to all the culture of Maine, I mean, is, um, is really self-serving, I think. And let's, let's face it. I mean, this, this whole thing, this veto, um, the way the politics were handled the last couple of weeks of the session, um, really all boils down to we're losing control. And quite frankly, on one hand, she says, all these federal laws apply to the tribes now. I don't know what they're talking about. On the other hand, um, we don't want these federal laws here because uh, look what look what almost happened to our lobster fishermen. And that's another example of state sovereignty, where the state said, I don't care what you say. This is important to our state. This is where we are on it. And what did they do? They went to the delegation and they got exemptions to the rule for the state of Maine. Right? And so, so state sovereignty um, being uh, preempted uh, becomes, or, um, or the claims that they, they don't have state sovereignty in a certain area becomes very convenient. Um, when it comes to tribal issues. Any comments, uh, Mullion? Yeah, I, I obviously agree with everything that's been said. And I think that the governor felt very threatened this session because we had been making some real great inroads uh, with the Republican leader and his caucus and uh, established a really great working relationship with him. So the lobster issue was, was clearly hinting uh, to that and to him. And, you know, the governor really buckled down on her opposition to, to tribal issues this session. She came out against LD78, which is simply printing the full Maine Constitution with the uh, treaty obligations to tribes 
and uh, and once again kind of played that card of oh this will just confuse everyone so this tactic of if the tribes get anything Maine will suffer Maine will be confused everybody's going to sue everybody it's uh, at least consistent uh, across our messaging right yeah you're right I think uh, some real desperation is shown in this in this letter uh, but I I think it's it's great uh, it goes into great detail about her thoughts and how controlling she is and uh, uh, I, I I think it might be great uh, great evidence later on. We need <laughs> if we need something because yeah, it's right here in black and white. Uh, okay, so uh, then she goes into unintended consequences are effectively irreversible, and uh, said the legislature under the terms of the Maine Implementing Act would be powerless to solve the problems created by the bill without the express agreement of each of the four Wabanaki nations. This means that this bill would operate like a binding contract and these changes would be effectively irreversible. Corey? Uh, It's not, nothing about this would be irreversible. Um, I, I don't, I've never actually done this research, but, but might do it at this point. Um, I'd be curious to see how many changes have actually been made to the Maine Implementing Act since 1980. Um, this year, uh, we know the governor signed, uh, LD 1620, which made changes to many parts of the Maine Implementing Act. The governor signed changes to the Maine Implementing Act last year with respect to passable body drinking water issues. They made changes to the fee to trust timelines in the, in the Maine Implementing Act. I think that was done last year too. You know, VAWA was amendments to the Implementing Act just a couple of years before that. I mean, we can go on and on. Um, I can think of probably a dozen times that the main Implementing Act has been amended um, in my in my memory. Um, and so I just I just don't think it's true that these are are practically irreversible. Um, I think it's just this is this is the state's way of saying we like the deal that there is. And we don't want to go back on it. You know, they they hold, you know, many of the sort of power cards here. And we acknowledge that. Um, but but this can definitely be changed. Um, it's been suggested that this all should be done outside of the main implementing act um, in a different part of state law so that so that tribal approval wouldn't be needed to, to amend this type of legislation in the future. And. You know, all that's saying is we want the ability to give and to take from you. And, um, you know, it's fine that that's the governor's perspective. Um, but I, I just don't think it's it's honest to really say that these changes can never, ever, ever be undone, because that's just legally speaking, absolutely not true. Yeah, I agree with that, too. I mean, what what kind of incentive do the tribes have? of not going back to the table on things when we have so much um, in the future to deal with. I mean, we're talking about this one piece of, of a much broader bill that's still sitting in the legislature. Um, so, so this idea that the tribes can't be trusted to negotiate, I mean, and I think Corey hit it right on the head. Uh, what the governor is really saying here 
is I don't like the fact that I cannot or state cannot unilaterally make changes. And what this bill really attempts to do um, in this area is make sure there's two seats at the table when we're talking about the issues that affect tribal nations in this state. So, so really what she's saying is I don't like the fact that I don't get to, um, to just make a decision to upend it. That's why they like so many things in state law. They can just go back and change it. And um, if it doesn't work for them, you look at what happened to Passamaquoddy, um, you know, in 1998, 99, whenever it was, Donald Soctoma, um, no, it wasn't Donald. I think it was Fred. Um, actually, put a bill in granting saltwater fishing rights to um, to the Passamaquoddy. They put that in state law. Nobody ever said anything. But once Elvers became two thousand dollars a pound, we got to change that, right? We can't have this uh, untethered access to this fishery by this tribe. Um, and, and we saw what happened there. And so that's an example of the state wanting the ability to, to unilaterally change things when, when they don't suit them. So, um, and that's not the way sovereigns should be working together. And, and, you know, I look at this kind of um, uh, unintended consequences I mean, welcome to our world. I mean, it's been 45 years or whatever it's been. Um, you know, we've been trying to make change for 30 years. And, you know, and, and we have not been able to because of our inability to unilaterally do that. And the state will defend their position to have an equal say in those issues um, over and over and over again. But then in the same breath, say we don't deserve that. And the, the, the further down the road we get to statutorializing ourselves in main state law, in my opinion, is, is the more we're going to legitimize the current paradigm, legitimize that we're Maine Indians, legitimize all of those things. And it makes me extremely uncomfortable to continue to negotiate things in state law, things like ICWA. Like I, I supported that effort. I support it because at the end of the day, um, we have to do the best we can to try to protect our children. And from that horrific condition that existed in the past and, you know, water quality standards, if it's truly about the river, if it's truly about the water, then we have to take every opportunity to protect that reclassifying main waters doing all with the understanding that those could be changed at any time. But at the same time, it's like, um, yeah, that while they want, you know, the ability to have veto authority in the conversation and then also try to statutorialize us in a way that um, gives them the ability to make change it's all about how do we maintain as much control as we can over these issues. And, and, um, and to me, no sovereign to sovereign negotiation, as you see all across the country, whether it's water rights, um, what it settlements, whatever it is, nobody ever leaves that table without a little heartburn. 
And I just feel like the state has been able to walk away from the table with a great big smile on their face for, for a very, very long time while the tribes still continue to have a lot of heartburn. So, um, so yeah, I, I find it kind of a, um, uh, can not only convenient argument, but but I find it to be to be one that's very clear about protecting the unilateral authority of of the state over the tribes. Yeah. So, oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, just real quickly, I find it interesting too the synergy of this veto letter and a lot of these points. And oh no, we're never going to be able to change it. Uh, with the Republican floor speeches uh, of the folks that, that opposed it and kind of led the effort to not override the veto. Uh, we heard a lot of the same talking points. So in a session where you have the governor's main priority being expansion of, of abortion access, uh, really ruffling the feathers of the Republican caucus and them feeling very strongly against it, the next day you have them coming together uh, to oppose tribes with a lot of the same language that was you know, interesting to watch and uh, unfortunate to be caught up in those politics. And and I do think that that issue lingered over so much of the work we're trying to do. And I'm glad that that will be, um, you know, not in the next year as we go into this again. Yeah, that that will not be, uh, may not be, because things never die in legislature, you know, Uh, and it's it's uh it's easy to manipulate tribal issues because they can always be the football uh that uh, goes to let's say a hot button issue like abortion or something else that we can you know get your vote over if you vote against this then uh you know and then the tribes voting against the tribes isn't going to hurt them you know and and that's why we're always so vulnerable um when bills come up in the legislature um, and I don't see a change. I don't see that changing unless we do something constitutionally. Okay, Corey. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so, um, I don't know. So what's the, uh, go ahead, Kirk. No, I was just going to say, I think you hit on a good point there. Um, you know, that's the, you know, with the efforts of the Wabanaki Alliance, with uh, the coalitions we've built, with the thousands of Maine citizens that are saying they want a new future in this relationship, uh, to the many people I talk to over and over that are embarrassed by it, um, it really is an institutional problem, right? Like, it, and it's that second floor, quite frankly, and, and that process. I mean, we get used as a political football a lot because you're exactly right, Donna. In the past, you know, we, we had no effect really on the political outcome of people's future uh, in that building. That's changing. And, um, and I look forward, quite frankly, to uh, this next cycle. I think, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the governor today, uh, but I think you raise an interesting point about the politics of everything. And while a lot of people stand up on both sides of the aisle, and I've heard from many members of both caucuses, 
and talk about the priority of Wabanaki people and uh, the priority of tribal issues and and it's historic where we are in these processes now. But but at the end of the day, uh, we can be tossed aside for broader, more important issues. And I uh, saw so as I've tried to reevaluate this past session. I have to tell you, this bill hurt a lot and it hurt. Uh, I've been in a lot of these things and maybe it's my age at this point in terms of being more towards the end of my public service than the beginning. But I, I think, um, you know, for me, it, it was, it was really tough to swallow this one. I mean, we had, I know the support was there and I feel at the end of the day, um, uh, the politics beat us in terms of, uh, you know, you, you raise the abortion bill, you know, the budget conversations, the, you know, gun control, whole host of other things where, you know, some people in some parties felt slighted on, on those issues. And there were opportunities. There were opportunities to prioritize us. There were opportunities to, um, to say you're not getting this without that. And, um, and I just feel like at the end of the day, uh, we got punished for politics that were really so far from anything we would be involved in. Uh, and it was extremely unfair. So, so, you know, obviously the governor doesn't help and beyond her veto, I don't think people understand the vicious, kind of uh, defending of that veto that went on after that. And, um, and quite frankly, I found it over the top and very, um, very interesting and eye opening in terms of uh, the strong arming that went on the amount of effort, the, to kill this tribal bill when, and say no time, all of this, and you take the abortion bill and I'm not taking a position on that bill. I just, I'm a pro-choice guy. I have daughters. Uh, I think Maine's law was was good, um, and there was no immediate, really, um, crisis to deal with. I felt like, at the very least, that could have taken a little more time and um, allowed our bill to be the focus. But at the end of the day, I don't control those processes. But I think um, to say for the governor to say, you know, this bill was too complicated yet within three months, we can pass a bill that divisive of our state, um, and, and get it signed without question. Um, when our bills, as you well know, as a legislator have been carried over and over and over and over again, um, I think to the tune of 12 years now for me. So, uh, so yeah, very frustrating. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%, uh, Kirk, on the, on everything you said, uh, and about the the uh, the abortion bill and uh, pro-choice as well. And I I think again, I I think the original the bill that was in place was would have covered everything until they could have looked at it further. Um, but. Uh, it, it was just pushed and uh, to our detriment. And, and it just show it just goes to show you the length that uh, 
this governor will go to uh, just to keep the tribes under control. Um, it's, it's, it's like something out of the deep South. And, you know, someone once said to me, uh, uh, something about Maine is the, the deep South of the Northeast. And it kind of struck me as, Hey, you know what? That's true. <laughs> uh, Molly, do you have comment? I totally agree. And, and it goes back to my little rant before about these colonial structures that, that really um, it replenishes itself and it, and it takes care of itself. And the governor is being uh, an instrument of that in this veto and in a lot of her actions. And I think, you know, the, 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 the issues that we have in Maine, I, I think that they're not the same as tribes across the country. We're, we're being t- isolated, controlled, I, you know, my ICE series is on this and, uh, and, and some of the research that, that we've uncovered really does not, uh, make the governor's actions a surprise. It, it actually makes it, it's expected. Um, and it kind of, I kind of wonder what, is there something we can do in the future? You know, what kind of path can we take? Any ideas, Kirk or? Well, I mean, see, look, the governor's veto was no no surprise. I mean, we knew we knew this was coming, and since last year, we started to work on a new approach in terms of uh, making sure that we were including both sides of the aisle. That we we understood, you know, with these tribal bills, we don't have the luxury of a seventy four to seventy two vote. We we have to get to two thirds on everything we do just about. And, um, and we knew that and, um, and we feel like we did the work. We got there and, um, and got caught up in a lot of, a lot of other stuff. But um, so, so we knew what we were again up against with the governor. Um, we, I guess, underestimated, at least I did the, uh, the level of, like I said, viciousness that, that went into defending that veto and, um, and actually, um, getting us caught up in multiple things, whether it was the lobster man, you know, the feds are coming to take over our state and, you know, all of these other, uh, scare tactics that went on. But I think, um, it just was eye opening in terms of the lengths that, uh, a few people that don't represent, all of Maine on this issue. I don't believe that. I mean, we're going to an event today with some amazing people um, that um, have supported um, tribal issues for a long time and are representative, I think, of, of most of Maine, you know, and so so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And um, I'm grateful that um, we're making a lot of progress. You know, we are becoming centerpieces to legislative sessions, which is which is a long ways from where we were uh, just a short time ago. So, so we we got a state that has an institutional mindset of uh, of exactly what you talked about. You know, we're fifty years from being able to vote in this state, let alone uh, you know access and tribal rights here. And, and it's uh, and I hope we can get over the hump. I really do, and I, I appreciate everybody that's working hard. You know, Mullion does a great job of bringing people together and 
and really educate. She's often the voice of calmness <laughs> and I, um, when I'm freaking out. So it's, um, so I, I appreciate everyone and, and we'll, we'll, you know, dust ourselves off and continue to do what we do. And that is, we have time on our side and, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll continue fighting. Okay. Well, thank you, Kirk. And thank you, Molly, uh, for joining us. Uh, I'm your host, Donald Loring. You've been listening to Webinacki Windows. I want to thank Chief Francis, Ambassador Bryant, Attorney uh, Corey Hinton for being on the show today. Tune in again uh, next month uh, for another Webinacki Windows.